Kia ora koutou. Ko Lucinda Thatcher aho. Good evening, everyone. My name is Lucinda Thatcher, and I am your host this evening, along with Gary Nixon, my chat coordinator. Welcome to our midwinter special on the bare bones of flaming joints. Over the next hour or so, we will be exploring the world of rheumatology and inflammatory arthropathy, an area not often covered in webinars. This evening's session is run by the section of Rural Health, the Department of General Practice at the University of Otago, and is supported by the Rural Hospital Medicine Division of the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners and endorsed for one hour of CME. If you'd like me to lodge your CME uh, points for this evening's session, please complete the evaluation form at the end and put your medical council number there. Just recognise that this offer is only available for the live session. We appreciate all feedback, positive and constructive, and as always, look for uh, further ideas for future webinars. Our speaker this evening is Associate Professor of Medicine, Will Taylor, who is a consultant rheumatologist working in the Hutt Valley, Tairawhiti, and at the Wakefield Specialist Centre. I would like to take this opportunity to say thank you to Will on behalf of all our rural practitioners for your time and expertise this evening. We would recommend you have a pen and paper, pretty old school, or some form of iNote to test yourself as we go through tonight's webinar. If you have a question, please put it in the chat. Remembering the first step to receiving an answer is being brave enough to ask the question. So on that slightly, hopefully, inspirational note, I will hand over to Will. Uh, kia ora tato. Um, thank you very much, uh, Lucinda, and um, uh, it's a great pleasure to be talking about a subject that is kind of bread and butter uh, in my day job as a rheumatologist. So I'll try and advance to the next slide, if it'll let me. So we're going to talk about um, inflammatory arthritis, uh, and I have circulated a few questions um, to think about. Hopefully some of you may have thought about them already, um, but if not, we'll think about them uh, through the course of the next hour or so. And obviously, I'm going to be providing some of the answers, but they're not always the answer. Uh, and I'm happy to take questions and discussion at any time. So we're going to focus initially, at least, uh, on some cases. Um, and the first case is um, a 23-year-old woman who comes to see you with a three-month history of painful stiff fingers in her hands and feet, particularly, especially worse in the mornings and on cold days. Uh, and she says that there has been some swelling and that she's noticed that her rings are a bit tight. I'm just going to make the pictures of you all smaller. Um, uh, and But when you examine her, there's not really very much to find that's abnormal apart from tenderness of, uh, of the joints that are sore. Uh, otherwise, there's not much abnormal to see on examination. You do a blood test and um, she has a somewhat slightly elevated CRP, 12, strongly positive rheumatoid factor, uh, uh, weekly to moderately positive ANA test, and you do some x-rays of her hands and feet, which are normal. So this is pretty band or uh, rheumatoid arthritis, although some people, uh, some authorities and guidelines require objective evidence of swelling, like the examining physician has to see joint swelling which can be tricky in the early stages because often the swelling is intermittent 
um, and may not necessarily be present uh, when she visits you in your surgery. So, um, but the, um, the, you know, the other clues here are the slightly raised inflammatory marker and the abnormal autoimmune serology. So the first question is, what are these, what, what, what do I mean by these three clues to the diagnosis of um, rheumatoid arthritis? What, what sort of gives it away and makes it um, pretty characteristic and typical? Um, so at this point, you can feel free to just jot some quick notes down on that pen and paper. Test yourselves. So I'll pause just for sort of five seconds, because otherwise we'll run out of time if I pause too much. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> Uh, uh, there are quite a few clues, really. Um, so one particularly characteristic feature of uh, rheumatoid arthritis is that the MTP joints are involved, uh, and there are not very many other uh, 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 inflammatory arthritic conditions that have um, inf inflammation of the MTP joints, particularly the lesser toes. Um, and so a positive MTP squeeze test is often recommended as a, uh, as a useful um, clue to involvement of, the, uh, of these joints. The second thing is um, very prolonged or, or, or fairly prolonged morning stiffness. Now, morning stiffness is a, um, a tricky uh, feature to evaluate because it's pretty common in just about any kind of um, musculoskeletal condition, including uh, trauma or osteoarthritis or just having been to the gym the day before and so uh, the, the kind of the clue to um, what, what rheumatologists like to think of as inflammatory um, morning stiffness is prolonged morning stiffness uh, at least 30 minutes and often much longer so the patient will describe that they're very stiff when they get out of bed in the morning and it doesn't kind of go away uh, often until mid-morning uh, and that can be distinguished from the brief sort of morning stiffness that um, resolves after a hot shower or the uh, stiffness that never goes away. So it's actually not, strictly speaking, morning stiffness. It's just <clears throat> all-day stiffness. So that lack of diurnal variation is another pointer away from um, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, really. And then the third clue is that... Uh, Rheumatoid arthritis is very much an autoimmune disease characterised by abnormal antibodies, uh, which can be measured. And the commonest ones are rheumatoid factor and CCP. There are a number of other sort of research tools that, that, that show up um, other autoantibodies, but these are the ones that are, have come into um, general um, uh, clinical practice. Now, the ANA test is often positive in rheumatoid arthritis, but it's not very specific to rheumatoid arthritis. I do mention it there, but it's not a, a particularly useful test in diagnosing rheumatoid arthritis, although it's often abnormally positive. And then there are a bunch of other um, clues, particularly extra-articular clues, that can um, uh, make it very clear that this is rheumatoid arthritis. So um, things like interstitial lung disease, uh, uh, ocular pathology like uh, very dry eyes or episcleritis, um, rheumatoid nodules, which are, are puzzling. And we might talk a bit about that uh, in another slide. And nail fold um, vasculitis. Extra articular features tend to occur in people with 
pretty bad rheumatoid arthritis or fairly prolonged rheumatoid arthritis. So it's normally pretty obvious from their joint disease that they've got rheumatoid arthritis even before they, they've developed these extra-articular symptoms. So I don't see any questions on the chat, so I'll just um, uh, kind of keep going if that's okay. Yeah, sure do. Yep, go for it, Will. Now, uh, we, could we could tweak this um, particular case a little bit. Um, uh, so say, uh, this time the, the young woman presents again with um, the same uh, history uh, and the same examination findings, but now her CRP is only just a little bit raised. Um, uh, the rheumatoid factor test is negative. The CCP antibody test is negative. She has a weekly positive ANA test, and again, plain X-rays of the hands and feet are normal. And this particular instance, we don't really have that much objective um, evidence. Seronegative rheumatoid arthritis, which is relatively common, is much more difficult to diagnose than seropositive rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, and um, and partly that's because of the lack of objective pathology, like the abnormal serology. Uh, probably about 30% of people with rheumatoid arthritis are seronegative for the rheumatoid factor, and probably about 20% are seronegative for CCP antibodies. So they do form quite a sizable uh, group of, of patients. Um, and one uh, common approach to try to nail down the existence of actual joint inflammation is imaging. So uh, imaging can be very helpful to identify subclinical inflammation of joints. Where the patient's presenting with clinically suspect arthralgia or, or you don't see uh, joint swelling on examination in the clinic uh, and their serology is not particularly diagnostic, then uh, MRI or ultrasound is quite helpful. Um, so MRI can um, identify uh, erosions uh, much earlier than plain x-rays, uh, bone marrow edema, which is uh, not exactly edema, but it's a cellular infiltrate uh, adjacent to the joints in the bone, in, in the bone which represents um, uh, inflammation in, in the joint. Um, and it's called a DEEM because it, it, it shines brightly with a water signal on MRI. Um, and then synovitis, which often shows up better with gadolinium um, contrast. Uh, so you can directly see the pathology of interest on MRI. So it's, it's, it's a very helpful and very sensitive um, test. People who complain of um, joint pain who have uh, a normal MRI scan are very unlikely to have uh, rheumatoid arthritis. And the other thing with, that's help, helpful with um, MRI is that bone marrow edema is associated with a greater risk of subsequent erosion. So it has some prognostic um, value as well. Now, um, MRI is a bit difficult to arrange often and it's quite expensive. Um, and I'm guessing in some places it requires quite a bit of traveling. So um, ultrasound has become quite a useful um, uh, substitute. Uh, 
Ultrasound can identify erosions and synovitis quite well, but it doesn't um, pick up bone marrow edema. That's only visible on an MRI scan. But the biggest advantage of ultrasound is that it can be done by the treating clinician uh, in the clinic, um, enabling um, treatment decisions to be made there and then. Um, and I'm aware that a lot of rural uh, doctors, rural ho hospital specialists, um, uh, uh, perform MRI, uh, perform ultrasound for various reasons, um, not necessarily musculoskeletal ultrasound, but uh, it may be something that uh, could be um, learned. And it's certainly the case for many rheumatologists, uh, especially young trainee, training rheumatologists now uh, learn ultrasound um, almost as uh, part of their training. I'm a bit older and not very anatomically minded, so it's never kind of rubbed off on me, I'm afraid. But um, yeah, ultrasounds are a useful, uh, a useful tool in the clinic. Okay, so um, the next case is a... Um, I might just um, quickly, Will, yeah. just a couple of things I wanted to highlight was uh, last night when we were speaking, we were talking about MRI. An MRI, you wouldn't do an MRI on everyone. It would be more utilised in those that there was clinical uncertainty. Is that Definitely. correct? Definitely, yeah. And, um, uh, and it's, you know, because making a diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis does tend to lead to um, recommending a bunch of potentially toxic drugs. So you don't want to come to making a diagnosis on, well, put it another way, you want to, you want to have a pretty firm platform for making a diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis, not only the, because of treatment implications, but insurance, um, stigma, uh, the sort of things it does to someone um, who, who, who's told that they've got a chronic disease that's never kind of going kind of go away. You know, there's a lot to take in when you diagnose uh, somebody with rheumatoid arthritis. So uh, you want to be reasonably clear. And as somebody who's seronegative and, and doesn't have objective um, swelling that you can see, um, it's, uh, it, it, I think it's helpful to, to have a more secure footing using imaging techniques. Fantastic. But, but on the other hand, somebody who's obviously seronegative, uh, seropositive, has a hooray CRP, uh, looks like rheumatoid arthritis, and they've got the joint swelling, it's a bit superfluous to go on and do MRI in those cases. I'm wondering when is the best time to have that quick synopsis of, of the rheumatology, uh, the rheumatoid serology sort of stuff, rheumatological serology. When do you reckon would be the best time to have a quick discussion around the rheumatoid factor and just mentioning about the ANAs and what's a positive ANA? Right. Yeah, ANA is a is a particularly difficult um, uh, blood test, actually. So um, it's really associated with um, lupus, SLE, and uh, some other uh, multi-system disorders like scleroderma um, or idiopathic myositis. Uh, when I said it's often positive in rheumatoid arthritis, it doesn't really carry any diagnostic weight, though. Uh, and the other point is that almost any autoimmune disorder, including Hashimoto's thyroiditis, 
can um, can give you a positive ANA test. It's also proven it's also present in a, a lot of completely normal people. So at least five percent of healthy blood donors have a positive ANA test. And when I say positive, I mean the what the what the laboratory report is positive, which is generally at least one in eighty uh, TETA. So um, you ANA test should be regarded as a screening test. If it's negative, then it's very unlikely that they've got uh, lupus or um, uh, some other kind of autoimmune connective tissue disorder. When it's positive, you're not really sure, but there are a bunch of other um, autoantibody tests called the ENA panel and the double-stranded DNA panel, uh, double-stranded DNA antibody test, which are m much more specific and hardly ever um, uh, don't hardly ever give false positives. So um, I think, uh, I, I mean, I've mentioned ANA test in those two cases because it's often presented like that uh, from a GP referral. ANA tests are commonly done, but very rarely give you useful information unless you clinically suspect uh, a, a disease like lupus. And joint pain by itself is not really sufficient to strongly suspect lupus, in my view, uh, there's no, almost always some other thing like frequent mouth ulcers or hematological abnormalities or a rash or photosensitivity or something like that. So I'm not sure whether that answers your question or not, but um, rheumatoid yeah. factor test and CCP antibody test, much, much more useful in people who have peripheral inflammatory joint disease. And will um, the the level of the TETA in the ANA that gets a rheumatologist excited is? Yeah, well, that's a bit of a kind of a trick question. I know you asked me that yesterday and I gave you well, a number. Well, it's not one in 80, is it? No, well, no, but um, it, it's not so much the TETA, actually. It's the all the other things that go along with it. So, yeah. um, you know, you can get people with very high teters who are absolutely normal, and you can get people with very low teters that have definite lupus, including renal disease. So the level of the teter, again, doesn't tell you that much either, really. Right, good. And then the other one was about the pattern, which you basically disregard because that always gets reported on our reports. Yeah, yeah. So that's a traditional immunological thing too. And um, uh, the only pattern that's worth taking any notice of is the centromere um, pattern because that's uh, quite closely associated with um, limited scleroderma. So people who present with uh, Raynaud's out of the blue um, ought to have an ANA test and if they have a, a centromere pattern then that's a, that's a definite clue to, um, to their Raynaud's being secondary to um, scleroderma or systemic sclerosis and those people definitely warrant referral. Brilliant. Thank you, Will. Gary, okay. any, anything from your end? Um, no, there's nothing at the moment there, uh, Lucinda, but it's really good stuff, Will. Thanks, okay. Gary. All right, so we're going to move to um, an older age group now, uh, a 72-year-old woman who's presenting with uh, a two-week, a relatively short history this time too, a uh, two-week history of painful stiff fingers, hand and shoulders, particularly in the mornings on cold days, very stiff and sore with marked difficulty getting out of bed in the mornings. And apart from stiff shoulders and obviously in the clinic room difficulty moving about, there's not a lot to see on examination. 
And she has quite a high uh, CRP level of 60, uh, normal rheumatoid factor, again, weekly positive ANA test, ubiqu the ubiquitous ANA test. Um, now, this, um, this person was diagnosed with polymyalgia rheumatica, not completely unreasonably. She's in that age group. She's got marked morning stiffness. She's got hip, uh, shoulder girdle um, pain and stiffness. She's got a high CRP and she responds really well to prednisone. So everyone's happy that that's what's going on. But four years later, she's still on 10 milligrams of prednisone and she has ongoing finger pain and swelling. And now also her feet are painful uh, and she's got swollen knees. And I present this case because um, uh, particularly in the elderly, uh, rheumatoid arthritis can present very similarly to polymyalgia rheumatica, and it can be a um, uh, it can be quite confusing. So one common reason for what looks like PMR initially that doesn't sort of track along what you expect uh, for someone with PMR. Uh, one reason for that is that they've actually got rheumatoid arthritis instead. So that's another, this is another kind of presentation of rheumatoid arthritis. And I should mention too, actually, that um, although we use this term rheumatoid arthritis as if it kind of covers everything and it's just one kind of unitary disease, it most likely isn't. Uh, but we just haven't figured out um, satisfactory ways of um, phenotyping particular types of rheumatoid arthritis, I would say, um, which is probably going to, it's probably a lot more complicated than, than we think. And hopefully genetics or something like that will help clarify things. But uh, this, is, this is another way of, of, this is another mode of presentation for uh, rheumatoid arthritis. So uh, uh, people with PMR, it look like PMR, it's very useful to do a rheumatoid factor test and a CCP antibody test early on. Um, because uh, if, they're, um, if they're raised, if they possess those antibodies, then that's a clue that they might not turn out to be straightforward PMR. And another kind of uh, mimicking condition is, um, is gout. So this is a 68-year-old man who, uh, who has a very long history of painful stiff fingers, hands and feet. Initially, his symptoms were quite intermittent. Uh, but now they're a lot more constant, worse in the mornings and on cold days. And more recently, he's developed nodules around the elbows and fingers. And he's got obviously swollen small joints and nodules. He's got a high CRP uh, and he's seronegative for rheumatoid factor and CCP. And this could, this could be gout. This could be rheumatoid arthritis. It's not um, clear. And um, uh, nodules particularly can be confusing. So I've got pictures here. One person, one of these pictures has uh, rheumatoid nodules and the other one has gouty tophi. And I asked Lucinda last night, picked the one that she thought had gout um, and she got it wrong. The wrong one. No, I got it wrong. But I can tell you that um, this person here on the uh, left uh, has rheumatoid arthritis and this person on the right has um, gout. And um, gout really is an arthropathy uh, because it causes damage to joints 
and the nature of that damage uh, involves can involve erosions that can look very much like rheumatoid arthritis, and it can lead to deformities that look like rheumatoid arthritis. Mm. Um, But in terms of nodules, um, rheumatoid nodules are are typically much firmer than gout nodules, uh, and they don't discharge, uh, whereas uh, gouty tophus, particularly in elderly women on uh, diuretics, often have quite large tophi over their fingers uh, that discharge uh, can become infected. Uh, But in, in tricky cases uh, it may be necessary to do a needle biopsy or an excision of one of these nodules to be absolutely sure what's going on. Um, These days there's another um, very useful non-invasive imaging technique called dual energy CT which can um, uh, resolve colour code um, different chemicals so you can actually light up urate deposition on a depth scan uh, and um, that can be uh, quite a useful pointer towards um, gout in someone who you don't necessarily want to be sticking needles into. So that leads me to the next question, which is about gout. Um, I mean, this presentation is kind of focused a lot on rheumatoid arthritis, actually, but um, uh, the title is inflammatory arthritis. So, uh, so we'll talk about other diseases a bit too. So this, this sec- section is a bit about, a ga- a bit about gout, a bit about gout. And um, uh, yeah, have a think about the various myths that you've come across regarding gout management. And I can tell you that there's more than three. <clears throat> so, um, so these are just some of the ones that uh, popped into my mind. Um, we're taught never to start urate loan therapy during an attack of gout. Um, a fixed dose, 300 milligrams is usually enough of allopurinol. Getting serum urate into the normal range is enough to control gout. Most patients are adherent to gout treatment. Um, that's probably not so much a, a myth as sort of wishful thinking, I suppose. Allopurinol will fix gout fast, uh, and gout is not a kind of arthritis. Um, I, th- I don't think doctors... Are, uh, confused by that last one, but patients certainly are. They get quite surprised when uh, you tell them that the gout is a kind of arthritis. So um, the first um, one about never starting urate lowering therapy, this has actually been studied um, relatively robustly, and it doesn't seem to make actually any difference. The, the, with the, the problem with allopurinol commencement or increasing the dose of allopurinol is that it always makes gout worse no matter what phase of treatment you started in, whether it's during the attack or after the attack's finished or a few months later. Uh, it always induces an un- unstable period of time when gout is, uh, gout, uh, when the crystals in the urate uh, and the blood have been mobilised. Um, so, yeah, you just have to kind of suck it up, really, uh, and, and, and start... Um, urate loan therapy in combination with prophylactic drugs like NSAIDs or colchicine or sometimes prednisone. The second um, myth uh, regarding the dosage of allopurinol, there's there's an enormous range of effective doses. Um, 
And um, 300 milligrams may be quite adequate for many people, but so might a smaller dose, but often a larger doses um, required. Uh, and um, the, the best way of treating, preventing gout is treating to a target urate level. Uh, and that target is, uh, is significantly less than the upper limit of normal which is around about 0.42. Uh, so for most people, you need to achieve a target of less than 0.36 millimoles per litre. Uh, and for tophaceous disease, where there's a bigger total body urate load, uh, then they ought to have an even lower level of target uh, in order to shrink tophi in their lifetime. Because we remember that... Um, that the fundamental problem with uh, in, in gouty patients or patients with gout is that their kidneys don't excrete urate efficiently. And the only way of getting rid of urate is for them to excrete it through their kidneys. So, um, so it takes a long time for total body stores of urate to be sufficiently depleted such that they don't form crystals anymore. So it's a long-term project uh, starting uh, allopurinol therapy, and it can take up to six months to a year before things are sort of um, stable. And it's really important to warn patients uh, about that period of instability um, so they don't think that you're, you're poisoning them with this horrible drug that's making the gout worse, which it probably will do. And, um, uh, yeah. So... Um, we know that pa most patients are, uh, are not adherent to any of the drugs that we prescribe for any condition, actually, but um, gout is particularly bad, and that's partly because it tends to make things worse when it's when it started. So why would you bother taking a drug that seems to be making things worse? But it does tend adherence does tend to get better with time, and uh, and patients there have been a, a nice study from Norway that shows that um, patients' beliefs in the effectiveness of their gout treatment improves over time. So it, with the passage of time and the direct experience that things are getting better, then um, adherence improves. Um, so I'll move to the next slide. Uh, although I'll, I'll just pause if anybody has questions about gout management, because it's a pretty common disorder. I just wanted to um, make a comment around the use of culture scene and in terms of the dosing. It's not quite so new anymore, but we used to use much higher doses of culture scene and that's been changed. Uh, you know, we no longer use it till we get diarrhea and um, hold people back then. And also in terms of the dosing of culture scene as a prophylactic agent and how long you use it for, Will? About one or two tablets a day uh, is it and sometimes, yeah, one, one tablet a day is often enough. Um, six months. So it's a good long time. Yes, absolutely. As you titrate up the allopurinol, sort of 100 megs monthly. Yeah. And, and, that's, and that's the other um, point, uh, I guess, to make about the up titration. Starting at a low dose uh, has two advantages, really. One is that the incidence of the allopurinol hypersensitivity syndrome is less if you start at a low dose. Uh, and also the second thing is that the uh, 
post-initiation flare rate seems to be less if you start at a low dose too and sort of gradually um, increase it. So um, the allopurinol hypersensitivity syndrome is a pretty scary disorder. Uh, people get very sick, ICU, ventilation, even what death. Um, and if you have a patient who 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 has that, you you never really want to use allopurinol ever again, actually. But um, uh, fortunately, it's rare, uh, and it can be, as, as I say, the incidence can be reduced by um, starting low and gradually increasing. And that starting, the choice of that starting dose often can be guided by the uh, kidney function. So for people with renal impairment, starting at a lower dose is probably a good idea. And there's some algorithms around uh, that, um, uh, that quantifies that. I don't have the numbers in my head right at the moment. That's all, it's all in the New Zealand formulary. Nicely done for us. Yeah. Okay. So... Um, Do you want to ask a question, Gary? Um, yeah, there's, there's a, couple of, uh, a couple of questions there. Although I, I thought you were going to say when you're talking about the three myths, I thought one of the myths of, of gout was that uh, skinny uh, white guys from down south don't get it. But I, know that, I know, in fact, that's not true. Um, yeah, like I said, there's loads of myths. And, yeah. and, and that, I mean, that, gout is quite an interesting condition from a um, sort of uh, uh, social anthropology perspective too. There's, you know, so much in the literature on in media um, and just in the community, um, the stigma associated with gout being a, a, a disease of obese people who drink loads of red wine and have a lot of fun um, and pay for it. But, um, yeah, that's clearly not, not, not true. Well, the, um, Jack had one question about um, using intraticular steroids in um, general practice for patients who get an acute flare of gout. So is the question that, uh, is it a good thing to do? Uh, yes, it is a good thing yeah. to do. Yep. Yep. And um, there are uh, intraticular steroids uh, are very effective in, um, in, in, in treating an attack of gout. Um, uh, and also it can be a good opportunity uh, if you could asp if you aspirate some synovial fluid at the same time, you can definitively confirm that this is gout. Now, when it's uh, affecting the great toe joint, which is the sort of the most common presentation, that's not always that easy. Um, uh, sticking needle sticking a needle into a big toe joint is, uh, sort of the last thing a patient with a, a really, really painful um, uh, toe wants you to do. Uh, and so it's not that common. But for, for other other larger joints like ankles or knees, it's really good. Mm. Okay, thanks, Paul. I I've just got um, one other question myself. I mean, frequently we will see patients when they're on the ward for some other condition and they're on a bit of allopurinol for gout. Should we be using that as an opportunistic um, time to check the uric acid and titrate their allopurinol? Because I, I certainly get the impression that allopurinol is, is not uh, titrated in, in, in the way that it should be. Yeah, and, and there's a lot of, uh, lot of, lot of uh, research and data to back up that perception, Gary, that you're quite right. 
allopurinol is not typically titrated up to target. And gout, uh, gout attacks are more common in hospitalised patients with gout. Um, coming into hospital is a risk for their gout to be worse than that, possibly partly due to dehydration or sepsis or, or, or sometimes being milled by mouth and missing their doses of um, allopurinol that can um, precipitate gout. But, yeah, I think that it's a useful uh, time to review their gout management um, and, uh, and giving some advice around up titration. Hmm. It is one of those medicines where you have the opportunity um, to overcome clinical inertia, isn't it? Great. Thank you, Will. Okay. Now, um, next patient um, illustrates another kind, uh, another set of conditions. So this is a, um, a youngish man with a two-year history of intermittent pain and swelling of the um, left knee and now swelling of one finger and a couple of toes. And he has a itchy kind of rash. Uh, in his natal cleft, which he hasn't really paid that much attention to, but you've noticed it as a, um, thorough, as a, as a doctor who does thorough examinations. And he has a, um, he has a raised CRP of 45, uh, and he's seronegative for room to factor and CCP, and his x-rays are normal. So this is a, um, a different kind of uh, inflammatory arthritis. Uh, and this is a picture of what... Uh, uh, dactylitis looks like. So this third toe and this fourth toe are just like little sausages. That's why they're called sausage digits sometimes, uh, where the whole toe is um, is swollen. Uh, it can affect the fingers too, but it's probably more common in toes, actually. Um, and this um, particular feature is relatively pathognomonic for, the, for spondyloarthropathies. Um, it doesn't occur in rheumatoid arthritis, and it's, uh, it's very rare in other disorders. Um, so when you see dactylitis, uh, it, it gives you a strong hint towards a spondyloarthropathy type disorder. And there are a bunch of those conditions. One is psoriatic arthritis, which is probably the commonest association with dactylitis, but it can also occur in reactive arthritis ankylosing spondylitis or inflammatory bowel disease-associated arthritis, um, but most commonly with psoriatic arthritis. Um, so the next question, oh, yes, so uh, that's just me saying it again. Um, uh, so the next question uh, to think about here is uh, what distinguishes spondyloarthropathies from rheumatoid arthritis? Um, this is the biggest other group of immune-mediated um, uh, uh, inflammatory arthritis that we see. Uh, and it's quite, um, uh, it's quite different from rheumatoid arthritis. Although they're both immune-mediated disorders, the, uh, the problem in rheumatoid arthritis is the adaptive immune system with all these antibodies, whereas in spondyloarthropathies, the problem is the innate uh, immune system. There are no abnormal antibodies that we can test for uh, in uh, psoriatic arthritis or ankylosing spondylitis. Uh, the only thing, the only abnormal blood test that occurs really is, uh, and this doesn't always happen either, is a um, acute phase marker like CRP goes up. So what distinguishes, so some of these um, things are, well firstly the name 
gives a big clue. So spond is a, a sort of a Greek word, I think. I think it's Greek um, for spine. Uh, and axial disease is um, is much more common in these conditions than it is in rheumatoid arthritis. And in fact, low back pain is never a feature of rheumatoid arthritis. So when you see someone with um, back pain that you think might be inflammatory in nature, don't ever do a rheumatoid factor test. And um, it's a waste of time. Rheumatoid factor test and CCP antibodies, all those antibody tests are for people with peripheral uh, inflammatory joint disease, not, not the spine. Having said that, um, rheumatoid arthritis can affect the neck, so the, particularly the atlantoaxial joint, but that tends to be a late feature and it's not really part of the um, diagnosis often. Um, and the other point is that um, spondylarthropathy conditions are often just a few joints. Um, that's not always true either, but uh, so some people with um, psoriatic arthritis can get a polyarthritis that looks a bit like rheumatoid, but um, most often it's oligoarticular, so just a few joints, often lower limb joints like knees or hips. Third thing is uh, the uh, this concept of antheses, which is quite which has become quite important over the last mm, probably twenty or thirty years. That it's recognised that um, Achilles tendonitis or plantar fasciitis occurs much more often in uh, spondylarthropathy conditions, and there's quite a bit of imaging evidence and some sort of pathological studies that show these bony attachments of ligaments and tendon or capsule. Uh, that junction with the bone with the bone is a particular site of inflammation for people with uh, spondylarthropathies. And you can imagine that why this why um, this is the case in ankylosing spondylitis because the sacroiliac joints are just masses of very strong ligaments holding together the the, um, the base of the spine to the pelvic bones under quite a lot of force uh, from the long lever of the spine. So there are loads of ligaments throughout the spine and especially around the sacroiliac joints, uh, which is kind of probably why that um, the sacroiliitis is so pathognomonic for um, ankylosing spondylitis. And then there are some peculiar uh, uh, extra-articular features that don't occur in rheumatoid arthritis. So the eyes can be affected by rheumatoid arthritis, but the, uh, it's episcleritis and sicker or dry eyes rather than anterior uveitis. Um, anterior uveitis is much more associated with um, reactive arthritis or, or psoriatic arthritis or ankylosing spondylitis, any of those conditions, you get anterior uveitis. And that's probably, again, uh, where the iris um, fibres join some kind of harder structure to kind of pull against, um, kind of analogous, I guess, to the enthesis. And um, I haven't mentioned it here, but aortic root um, and uh, uh, the aortic valve can be um, uh, damaged mm -hmm. or inflamed in um, ankylosing spondylitis. And again, that can be um, seen as a sort of a enthesitis of the heart, uh, if you want to kind of stretch the analogy a bit. Last thing is that rheumatoid arthritis is not associated with the HLA-B27 gene, whereas Almost everyone with ankylosing spondylitis will have that gene. About 95% of AES patients have that gene. 
but it's not it's not an amazingly useful diagnostic test for um, AES actually because um, probably at least eight to ten to fourteen percent of the normal healthy population have the HLA between seven gene, so it's not very specific. And because back pain is so you know ubiquitous, uh, if you did an HLA between seven test on every person that you um, saw with back pain, then you would really over-identify um, people, um, and we would be swamped <laughs> in rheumatology clinics with um, with patients with mechanical back pain. Um, yeah, so the most useful diagnostic test actually. Shall I just pause pause there, listen? Is there something you wanted to ask me? No, or no, I just no. Move on. Yeah, keep going, Will. Yeah. So, uh, uh, yeah, the most useful um, test uh, for uh, a spondylarthropathy condition uh, is imaging, um, particularly a, a ankylosing spondylitis. So, plain X rays of the um, sacroiliac joints can show. Uh, signs of sacroiliitis, particularly in later stages. Uh, and for people who are presenting uh, within the first few years of symptoms, MRI is very useful. So uh, imaging is, is, is a kind of a cornerstone for diagnosis of AES. For peripheral joint disease like um, reactive arthritis or psoriatic arthritis, it's the clinical pattern uh, that makes the diagnosis much more than any investigation. So having a raised CRP may be helpful, but there are no antibody tests that you can do to clinch the diagnosis. It's, um, it's, it's, it's based on clinical judgment and the pattern of symptoms. Uh, well, in terms of a reactive arthritis, is that just going to be a, you know, say if it's related to chlamydia or a gastro infection, will that just be a short-lived condition or do we tend to, does that tend to Moulder on, moulder on. Uh, yeah, I, I, the, my kind of rule of thumb is that about a third uh, resolve over um, a short time, like one or th one to three months. Um, then there's another third that it moulders on for a longer period of time, maybe a year or so. And then there's another third where it seems to be a, a chronic condition and it keeps kind of coming coming and going. Okay. There is there there used to be a vogue uh, for testing the HAD27 gene in people with reactive arthritis because it may predict a longer disease course. Um, but, yeah, I don't know that it's that accurate and just watching and waiting is, seems fair to me. Uh, there are some um, drugs, you know, DMARD-type drugs that are used in chronic reactive arthritis. Okay. And the essence of time, Will, we'll move on. Yeah, so uh, now we're going to talk, we're coming, we're sort of circling back to um, our first case, the young woman who had a pretty clear-cut uh, presentation with rheumatoid arthritis, and we're talking about, um, in the last segment, management uh, issues. So uh, that brings me to the fourth question, which is about methotrexate. Why is methotrexate the most favourite drug of rheumatologists? Not sure whether that's totally grammatically correct, actually, but uh, you get what I mean. Um, so just pause for a couple of seconds, and I'll tell you why I like methotrexate a lot. So it's um, 
it's broad one so one of the most important reasons is that it, it kind of works for for many different autoimmune and immune mediated diseases um, that includes psoriasis psoriatic arthritis uh, lupus rheumatoid arthritis uh, it's been used for treating um, uh, uh, progressive multiple sclerosis not amazingly well but has been used um, inflammatory bowel disease uh, inflammatory eye disease uh, almost any kind of inflammatory uh, sarcoidosis um, methotrexate is a, is a useful agent um, not always shown in double blind placebo controlled trials actually uh, but still um, uh, many of those diseases don't lend themselves very well to um, being evaluated in that way but methotrexate um, uh, has a good reputation for lots of immune mediated conditions and so rheumatologists use it a lot and then they get kind of used to it and familiar with it uh, so they use it more it also has a reasonably good uh, toxicity profile um, if it's used in weekly low dose regimes by which i mean less than 20 or 30 milligrams a week um, and if you just compare that to the a typical cycle of methotrexate and cancer chemotherapy high dose cancer chemotherapy you know it's almost um, a couple of orders of magnitude um, different and so the toxicity that you see with that uh, dosing is different from the toxicity that you see with low-dose oral methotrexate given weekly. Um, so, yeah, it, probably about 80% of patients that we start on methotrexate continue with it, and most stop it um, because of toxicity issues, often nausea. Uh, it's also pretty easy to take in that it's just once a week, and patients often... Uh, are quite surprised that um, uh, quite glad that they don't have to take a drug every day um, and um, a weekly dosing as long as they've kind of got a, a regular schedule around that uh, it seems to work quite well so so that's methotrexate you'll, you'll you know you'll, you'll have patients for sure on methotrexate for one reason or other and the objects of um, treating rheumatoid arthritis are kind of twofold the first one is obviously to make the patient feel better, uh, and that involves, you know, relieving the symptoms of joint pain and stiffness and swelling, uh, hopefully making them able to do their day-to-day -day lives um, more easily and without discomfort. Um, but the second really important um, uh, thing that we want to try and do is to prevent um, damage from occurring in the joints, because we know that rheumatoid arthritis has this um, propensity to cause quite marked destructive joint damage. And this is an X-ray of uh, a lady uh, with um, that kind of problem. And you can see sort of normalish looking PIP joints, but these MCP joints are effectively destroyed. There's no joint space. This one's just sort of falling off its, pe um, its peg. Uh, and in the wrist, there isn't one anymore. Uh, and all of these kind of um, moth-eaten looking um, darker spaces are erosions. And um, 
And rheumatoid arthritis has this propensity to uh, erode away cartilage and then the underlying bone, which unfortunately is not easy or actually not possible with current technology to repair. And um, so once the damage is done, it's, it is kind of no going back. And so um, trying to prevent the damage in the first place is the sort of the mantra of uh, treating uh, rheumatoid arthritis. Great, and, that sounds good. Yeah, and the way that we do that is, oh, well, I'll ask you, how do we do that? So what are the three most important treatment strategies to effectively manage rheumatoid arthritis, given those two objectives? If we just put that straight up, Will, because we're running tight on time now. Yep. So the first thing is um, to start before the damage occurs. So that means starting pretty early. And also, this does seem to be a um, uh, it, it does seem to be easier to control the disease when the total volume of inflamed tissue in the joints is sort of smaller rather than larger. And there's quite a lot of evidence to show that starting early, like within the first weeks, six weeks or so uh, after symptoms or referral. Uh, is is helpful and, and you, you know I tend to um, ask GPs now to start methotrexate when I receive the referral rather than waiting them for to come into the um, clinic to be seen because there's so many delays. The second thing is uh, this treat to target approach, which is um, uh, adjusting treatment relatively frequently, possibly every three months or so, to keep disease activity as low as possible, and that. Disease activity means uh, a combination of uh, symptoms of pain and swelling of the joints, um, objective signs of swelling, uh, and um, and pathological markers of, of, of inflammation like CRP or sometimes uh, imaging. And then the third uh, useful strategy is uh, because there are so many uh, treatment options now for rheumatoid arthritis and because patients have to commit to a relatively long-term proposition here, with treatment, that uh, negotiating options and giving patients some involvement and engagement in the decision makings is, is helpful if you can, uh, if it seems appropriate. And I quite like this um, Chinese um, proverb because it sort of explains the, um, the treat to target uh, approach being relatively agnostic with regards to how you get there. Um, many paths lead from the foot of the mountain, but at the peak, we all gaze at the single bright moon. And so um, uh, low disease activity is that single bright moon, but there are loads of different drugs and combinations of drugs that, um, that help us to get there. And there's quite a lot of individual variation, both amongst rheumatologists um, who are sort of um, making recommendations, but also the patients and their response to the drugs. The toxicity profile is different. Um, and maybe pharmacogenomics may help us in the future, but at the moment, there's quite a lot of trial and error with uh, trying a commonly used thing like methotrexate and then tweaking it every few months uh, to find out the, uh, the treatment that works. And in New Zealand, because of um, funding criteria for special authority via Pharmac, the, um, uh, that also puts another kind of constraint on treatment options. A highly targeted anti-cytokine therapy that is biologics, they've really revolutionised the management of rheumatoid arthritis. And I was saying to Lucinda last night that we used to have a monthly 
uh, combined orthopaedic rheumatology meeting where we would present our patients with damaged joints that needed surgical repair. Well, we don't need to have those meetings anymore because um, the frequency of pa patients needing orthopaedic surgery has just uh, reduced um, markedly. So uh, there were some pre-meeting questions about COVID and immunosuppression, um, which I'll just um, talk about very quickly. Um, basically, the bottom line is that um, uh, most drugs are okay uh, and don't, um, most of the drugs that we use are okay and don't uh, predispose people to catching COVID or getting worse COVID if they do catch it, except for a couple, particularly rituximab, mycophenolate, and moderately high doses of prednisone. So those drugs uh, have been shown to be associated with worse outcomes, and you need to take a bit more care of those patients probably uh, and a bit more uh, enthusiasm for antiviral treatments like Paxlovid. So, uh, the, and the other kind of thing is that uh, methotrexate has been shown to reduce the effectiveness um, of COVID um, vaccination. So it's recommended that people skip one or two doses of methotrexate after each vaccine dose. And um, well, just to clarify, is that all vaccinations or just the influenza and COVID? Yeah, good question. Um, that's those are only, single? Yeah, those are the only two. Um, those are the only two vaccine recommendations around or, that have been shown to be attenuated um, effectiveness with methotrexate. It may be true for other ones, but I'm I'm not sure actually. For shingles, the problem is a bit different because the funded shingles vaccine is a live attenuated virus. And so it's kind of contraindicated to inject ah, people right. who are maybe a bit immunosuppressed with um, viruses. Yeah. Uh, and you don't tend to get a flare up if you withhold the methotrexate for one to two weeks? Not generally, no. Great, thank you. Um, yeah, so uh, rituximab is a particular problem, uh, maybe a bit small print for generalists, but it is a headache for us as rheumatologists because it's a very long-term drug. It, it takes um, a year or so for it to be out of the system, and um, uh, and it not only interferes with the effectiveness of the vaccine, but it makes people worse if they catch COVID. There are some preventative antivirals uh, coming along called Evushield, which is a combination of two monoclonal antibodies, and that may be available to us um, soon, I believe. Um, so I'll just, unless there are particular questions about COVID and rheumatology drugs, I'll move to the next slide. No, yep, keep going, Will. Thank you. I can move so, on. Yeah, so I've kind of um, listed the sorts of drugs that, or the sorts of treatment sequence we might use here. Uh, and um, uh, I don't know that it's necessarily useful to go over this um, in detail. All I would ask you with that, Will, is see your little three-letter acronyms. You could just whip through what they are so that when someone's watching this afterwards, they know what right. they stand for. So MTX is methotrexate, and hydroxychloroquine is HCQ, and that's a very useful adjuvant drug. It's not particularly effective on its own, but in, in, com excuse me, in combination with um, 
uh, other DMARDs, uh, hydroxychloroquine is quite helpful. The flutamide is LEF uh, and uh, SASP is silazepirin. So those are the, the main four oral DMARDs, uh, methotrexate, hydroxychloroquine, leflunamide, and sulfasalazine. And then there's the, the bio, then we get into biologics, and the funded ones in New Zealand are adalimumab or etanercept, that's a TNF inhibitor. Um, and those are given by subcutaneous injection weekly in the case of etanercept and every other week in the, in the case of uh, adalimumab. And then there are uh, other MABs, other biologics. There's infliximab, rituximab, tocilizumab. And the newest one on the block is upadacitinib or RINVOC. And that's a, um, a targeted synthetic DMARD that inhibits an enzyme, intracellular uh, enzyme that um, uh, is used for sort of signaling when a cytokine binds to the surface of the cell. So it prevents the action happening in, uh, inside the cell. And, um, and in New Zealand, everything beyond sulfasalazine uh, needs a special authority number and you have to meet certain criteria for that. So there's quite a few barriers to those, to those drugs. And in other countries, those agents would be used much earlier in the sequence. Okay. Just a quick word about pregnancy and lactation um, uh, because a lot of young women get rheumatoid arthritis. Um, and sometimes it gets better during pregnancy, room twin arthritis gets better during pregnancy and treatment is not necessarily needed, but that doesn't happen all the time, but it, it often does. NSAIDs are generally okay until the third trimester where it can interfere with the closure of the uh, ductus arteriosus. So that's important to bear in mind. The main take home message here is that methotrexate and leflunamide are contraindicated. Those are definitely shown to be teratogenic and methotrexate is used to induce abortions in some places. So um, actually, just as a side note there, a lot of rheumatologists in the US since the um, Supreme Court ruling on abortion are getting nervous about prescribing methotrexate at all to women mm -hmm. of childbearing age because they could be accused of procuring a, an abortion. Right. Um, which is a kind of a curious twist. But mm -hmm. um, silazepirin and hydroxychloroquine are okay. Uh, and TNF inhibitors, the newest ones and the most and the most effective drug, drugs probably, are uh, also okay uh, in pregnancy, except you've just got to bear in mind that the antibody, the these drugs do cross the placenta. So the neonate can be slightly immunosuppressed, uh, which uh, for, for, for a while, um, until they build up their own antibody repertoire, which can take, a, you know, six months or so. So um, there's a, a, a live attenuated vaccine rotavirus, I think, that's given six and 12 weeks. Um, that should be avoided if their mother has taken an anti-TNF right up until the term. But if you stop it um, at about 20 weeks or 25 weeks or something, then it's, um, it's okay. So pregnancy is generally quite manageable. Uh, I'll miss out this one. This is just ways of um, operationalizing the concept of low disease activity. Um, and then this one, uh, this I think we're getting to the last slide, uh, just to talk about typical side effects of um, the drugs that we use. And we do like to check blood tests periodically, usually monthly for the first six months and then three monthly. 
because most of the drugs can cause uh, bone marrow suppression or hepatitis. Um, uh, so full blood count and liver tests are, are sort of mandatory. Creatinine can be useful, um, although it's not, not critical. And the CRP is often helpful in terms of disease mo uh, activity monitoring. And the, the worst, the, the, the main concern with methotrexate is the risk of long-term liver fibrosis. That's what we kind of worry about the most with that drug. Uh, and that's why uh, we get paranoid if we don't see liver tests periodically. The main th problem with biologics uh, is infection risk. Blood test monitoring is not so important for those drugs, but uh, we do screening for um, latent TB particularly. Um, and you just need to have a, a lower index or a higher indi lower index of suspicion for, um, for treating infections with antibiotics in those patients. So the take-home messages are, this is the last slide, rheumatoid arthritis, it's usually easy to recognise, but not always. Um, treat early with a DMARD, adjust every three months to achieve low disease activity. There's lots of treatment options available. Unfortunately, none are, are perfect, but eventually we do find something that works for most people. Um, drug side effects are still a, um, uh, a, a, a problem, generally speaking. Infection risk and treatment during pregnancy are challenges and most demands do require regular blood tests. Thank you very much. Thank you, Will. Now, I'm one never to be afraid of asking a question, so probably why I do this job. But um, just in terms of your definition of high-dose steroids uh, in terms of the association with cleft pellets, we do use a relative amount of um, prednisone. Is that the actual dose and is it also the duration? Can you just... Yeah, I'm not totally sure about that last, but it uh, certainly the dose um, and possibly the timing of the um, of the prednisone during the pregnancy too. Um, um, what's your definition of high dose? 60, 40? 40, yeah. 40, okay. And then the second one was yesterday we were talking about methotrexate and its mechanism of action and how most of the reasons for stopping or people not tolerating the drug is because of its anti-folate action and how and just around the folic acid regimes and things right yes so um so methotrexate is a folate antagonist and that's um certainly the mechanism of its action in cancer chemotherapy but in rheumatoid arthritis it doesn't seem to be quite so important it does some other things as well um but a lot of the side effects are mediated by folate um, inhibition and so supplemental folate can reduce those side effects particularly mouth ulcers and nausea and sometimes liver abnormalities and um, the standard sort of regime is one five milligram tablet a week um, but there are lots of other approaches and, and people have there's no kind of very good science or trials around this I think but because it's just a vitamin B tablet, and you can't really take overdose, particularly on folate. Um, taking more of it uh, can help keep people on methotrexate when you want them to stay on it because it's working quite well for their arthritis. But they just get a bit of nausea for a day or two after taking it, or their or their liver tests are a bit um, of a worry. So increasing it to the folate to every second day or sometimes every day apart from the day that they take methotrexate is not uncommonly utilised in order to keep them going. 
And it was good in my mind to realize that that didn't actually negatively impact on its effectiveness right. as a treatment for RA. Because that yeah. was what my was, my, I had a concern around that in terms of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and that sort of underlies the, that thought, uh, underlies the sort of the reason why it's avoided on the day that they take methotrexate. I actually think that that's probably a bit, mytho a bit of a myth as well. Um, we, we just don't know uh, exactly um, how much and when, uh, and things have just kind of arisen from um, practice. But that's I the did. convention, is not to take it on the day of methotrexate because of that theoretical risk that it might interfere with its activity, but it probably doesn't. Yep. Okay, great. Thank you, Will. I'm going to hand over to you, Gary, because I do think someone snuck one in at the bottom, which is brilliant. We're happy with that. Do you want me to ask? I think Gary needs to unmute himself. Sorry about that. There's a question there from Alex, and it's around uh, any tips for differentiating RA from OA and, and hands, finger joint, uh, joints, and uh, any adjuncts to medications for this, I presume for both RA yep. or OA. Right, yeah. So OA typically affects the DIP joints, and rheumatoid arthritis does. And also the other uh, characteristic joint that um, OA affects is the um, that it's not really so dominating. So pattern of joint involvement is quite important. Um, similarly, MCP joint involvement is uncommon in OA, but very common uh, in rheumatoid arthritis. So pattern of joint involvement, uh, and then the, the nature of the swelling. So soft tissue swelling um, is the rule, particularly in early rheumatoid arthritis, um, but bony swelling uh, is the rule for, um, for, for osteoarthritis. Uh, and so you get these hibidin nodules, which are those little pea-like um, bony protuberances on DIP joints, and Bouchard nodules, which are similar, but on the PIP joints. And those are pretty typical of um, osteoarthritis. So yeah, it's it's the, the duration of morning stiffness is usually not quite so long in in uh, osteoarthritis, and you don't get a raised CRP, and obviously they're not seropositive for rheumatoid factor and CCP, but, but mostly um, it can be distinguished on just looking at their hands. Uh, what was the other part of that? Adjuvant treatments is that for? Um, yeah, so osteoarthritis, that's, a big, that's another kind of couple of hours talk in itself. <laughs> um, uh, there actually isn't, well, in a way, it is pretty quick. Uh, so there's not that many effective treatments for osteoarthritis, unfortunately, from a sort of biological point of view. Um, there's no interventions that I'm aware of that alter the natural history of um, osteoarthritis. Um, so it's, it's palliative, essentially, and uh, trying to maintain function. And there are lots of kind of um, things around that with splints and orthoses and gadgets and aids and pacing and, um, and then from a sort of a symptomatic point of view, um, different kinds of gels and nutraceuticals and 
CBD oil, you know, you name it, people have tried it for osteoarthritis because there basically isn't anything that's, you know, overwhelmingly effective. I, I have to say I'm a little bit pessimistic when it comes to treatment of osteoarthritis. You can certainly, though, uh, with OA, you know, I, I've certainly changed my uh, mental um, algorithm around it in terms of utilising it as a wear and repair and that, you know, depending on the joint, not so much in the hands, but in terms of weight management and mobility and motion is lotion. So actually actively using the joint in the cartilage within the joint, um, being able to continue to produce its synovial fluid and lube itself up and things is what I've read recently. And, I think and yeah, I think I'm, a, a, I'm more yeah. of an optimist maybe. Yeah, no, look, I think that you're, 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 you're quite right, Lucinda, and there is this kind of... Um, uh, 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 unhelpful um, uh, concept of osteoarthritis as being due to joints wearing out um, and so that communicates to the patient well I should stop doing things so that uh, that I don't wear out so fast but um, yeah. movement is, is healthy for joints and, and does improve their nutrition and most of the underlying reason for osteoarthritis is genetic uh, and sometimes injury so you know you can you know if you if you damage a joint then it's more prone prone to developing osteoarthritis late, lately particularly chondral injuries um but yeah yeah so i think um uh, what you say is right movement is good and we should be encouraging that well that is great thank you will thank you uh gary so thank you all with our utmost appreciation for your time organising and presenting and answering all our questions this evening. I certainly know that my knowledge has been refreshed, updated and clarified around inflammatory arthropathy and I think that's going to have a threefold benefit for my own personal uh, clinical skills, my patient's care and also for the sanity of all the rheumatologists out there. So uh, I would like to say thank you very much and also thank you to everyone for attending. Uh, Gary has put up the evaluation form for you. So if you would like, I would love everyone to complete the evaluation form. But if you would like me to uh, load up CME points for you, put your medical council number in there. Thank you very much.